I love that song. I love especially the, the chorus, what it drives home. Uh, that, ca- that chorus captures the Christian's heartbeat. It's what we live for, to worship Christ. It's such a joy to sing our praises to Him, to read His Word, to pray before Him, and to open His Word and to hear from Him. So we return this morning to John chapter 14. We return to a scene in which Jesus has been preparing his disciples for hard times ahead. Their beloved master is going to be arrested, beaten, and hung on a cross in a matter of hours. These events are going to shatter the hearts of his disciples. It's going to feel like their world has been turned upside down. It will seem like this one that they have grown to love is dead and gone. And even after Jesus has risen and ascended, the disciples are going to continue to experience hard times in the form of persecution and trials. And in light of the hard times that are ahead for the disciples, Jesus is going to reassure his disciples of his commitment to them. That's what we see in our text this morning. John 14, we pick up in verse 18, and we'll go to verse 24. John 14, verses 18 through 24. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, for you are holy. You are holy, holy, holy. And what a privilege it is to worship you. We thank you for salvation in Christ that has brought us to be worshipers of you. We ask that you would help us this morning by your Spirit to grasp the gravity of the great blessings that Christ bestows on those who cherish him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Last time we saw that Jesus gave his disciples a challenge 
And he followed that with a promise. The challenge was for them to take to heart that those who truly love Christ will demonstrate that love in obedience to Christ. If they truly love him, they'll show it in their obedience. And then the promise was that Jesus would ask his Father to send another helper, the Spirit of truth, who would indwell them and who would help them to obey Christ. If you read between the lines of verses 15 through 17, Jesus is talking about relationship. The relationship between Jesus and his disciples. It's a relationship that's based in love. And what we see between the lines is verses 15 through 17 gets fleshed out more in our passage this morning. Hard times are coming for the disciples and they need to know that nothing can separate them from the love of the one that they have come to love. Nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. On the contrary, Jesus assures his disciples in this passage this morning that he will continue to be a channel of rich blessings to those who love and obey him. And these blessings are promised to all of you who have come to cherish Christ. You need to learn to rely on these promises of Christ's blessings as you live out your days in this fallen world. You need to set your mind on these blessings that Christ has promised to you so that they might comfort you and strengthen your heart in hard times. Awareness of these blessings also should encourage you to grow in your love for Christ and your desire to obey Him. There are three of these blessings, promised blessings from Christ that we'll look at this morning in this passage. The first blessing that Jesus promises to those who cherish Him is that Jesus will never abandon us. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This picture is vivid. The picture of an orphan. Children depend on their father for provision and for protection. And the disciples, they've been relying on on Jesus for practically everything. And Jesus has now been telling his disciples that he's going away. When Jesus is crucified, they're probably going to feel alone. Those disciples will even perhaps feel abandoned. And Jesus is basically saying that though it may feel that way, the reality is Jesus will never abandon them. Jesus is not going to leave them to fend for themselves. His death will not sever his relationship with them. His death will not in any way take away from his commitment to provide ongoing blessings to them, to care for them. He will not leave them as orphans. Now perhaps you 
have felt alone, when you have encountered hard times. Perhaps you've even had that, that feeling of being forsaken. You felt perhaps that God has, has left you. You might have questioned like the psalmist, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? When you face hard times in your life, feelings of loneliness and abandonment can be overwhelming. You may feel like you're drowning in them. These feelings perhaps may even be, it's like, like they're suffocating you. Despair. Well, Jesus' promise in verse 18 slices right through those feelings. It lays them bare. You see, your feelings are not a reliable source of what is true. In fact, Proverbs 28, verse 26 says that he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. That's pretty direct. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Instead of trusting in our own heart, we should follow what Proverbs 16, verse 20 says. He who gives attention to the word will find good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Don't trust in what your heart tells you. Trust in God and in what God says. You need to learn to preach these promises of Jesus to your own heart. When those feelings of being alone and, and abandoned come upon you. The truth for those who cherish Christ is that Jesus will never leave nor forsake you. You will never be left alone or abandoned by him. He is faithful, and he will not go back on his word. Even in our darkest hour, Jesus is with us. In the words of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Our good shepherd will never abandon us. He's always there. So keep your heart in check. Don't follow your heart. Lead your heart with the truth. Lead your heart with what Christ has said. The particular truth that Jesus mentions in John 14, verse 18, is that Jesus will never abandon those who cherish him. Now look at what Jesus says in the latter part of verse 18. He says, I will come to you. And we may wonder, what coming is Jesus referring to here? What is he talking about? That Jesus had spoken his promise about asking his Father to send another helper like him, the Spirit of truth, to indwell the disciples in verses 16 and 17. And now Jesus says in verse 18 that Jesus also will come to the disciples himself. I believe verses 19 and 20 shed more light on what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm coming to you. It says this, after a little while, the 
world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This coming of Jesus will occur in such a way that the world will no longer see him, yet the disciples will see him. It's a time associated with Jesus being alive and the disciples having a life because Jesus is alive. It's a time when they will recognize that Jesus is in his Father. It's a time when the disciples will know that they are in Christ, Christ is in them. And if we think about how Jesus' words about his departure seem to incorporate both his shorter-term departure in his death and then also that longer-term departure in his ascension to follow, it seems that Jesus speaks in a similar manner here about coming to the disciples. It's more of a general comment to comfort them. The focus is, in this particular moment is not to get into detail about the sequence of events. The word day in verse 20 can be a single day or it can refer to a broader period of time depending on the context in which it is used. The, the nearer coming that I believe is captured in this moment, Jesus is speaking to his disciples this promise, he's coming to them, is a reference to his post-resurrection appearances. The world would not see these appearances. Only those believing in him would see him. The last that the world sees Jesus until he returns to judge it is his crucifixion. But the, the disciples see him after his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15 we have recorded there a number of these appearances of Jesus after his resurrection to his disciples. Particularly chapter 15 verse 6 says Jesus appeared at one point to more than 500 brethren after his resurrection. These appearances of Christ would certainly emphasize Jesus being alive and the disciples having a life because he lives. The disciples will come to greater recognition that Jesus is in his Father, at least that they'll have an understanding that he has the same nature as his Father, that he's God in the flesh. In John 20, verse 28, Jesus appears after his resurrection to Thomas. And Thomas calls to him, he says, My Lord and my God. He recognizes Jesus as God. And so he demonstrates here a grasp of Jesus' divine nature. So what we're seeing here in verses 19 and 20 of John 14 is a, a second blessing that Jesus promises to those who cherish him. It is that Jesus gives us life. Jesus gives us life. Let's read again verses 19 and 20. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Not only does Jesus guarantee 
that he will not abandon his disciples. He will not leave them as orphans to fend for themselves. But he also promises that they will live because he lives. And the means by which Jesus' resurrection life secures life for his disciples and is applied to his disciples is a doctrine referred to as the believer's union with Christ. The union with Christ. When Jesus says at the end of verse 20, you and me and I and you, that language is describing the believer's union to Christ. If you'll turn with me to Romans 6, we'll see that Paul speaks of believers being in Christ and the significance of them being in Him. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul talks here about being united with Christ. He talks about Jesus dying in our place, so it's like we have died. And because he rose and lives, so we live. If you'll turn with me now to Romans chapter 8, a couple chapters over. Paul also talks about Christ being in the believer. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. However, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. This is amazing. Paul talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in verse 9. Then he calls the Spirit the Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 10, Paul just speaks of Christ being in the believer. He says, If Christ is in you, your spirit has been made alive. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then you live because Christ is risen and He lives You have his life in you. 
Now, I want us to think a bit more about what's being said here in Romans 8 about both the Spirit-indwelling believers and Christ-indwelling believers. Because when Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, I believe he was talking not only about his post-resurrection appearances, but also that he would come to them in the Spirit. He came to them bodily in his post-resurrection appearances, but also after he ascended bodily, he came to them in the Spirit. And when the Spirit came to indwell them, he gave them, I believe, a much deeper sense of what it means for Jesus to be in the Father and the disciples to be in Jesus and Jesus to be in the disciples. And the life of Jesus was even more abundantly at work in the disciples when the spirit of life came to indwell them. And so it is for you who cherish Christ and have the spirit of Christ indwelling you. No matter the difficulties that you may face, no matter what trial you go through, no matter the storm, even now you may be in one of the deepest valleys you've ever faced. It may be painful. It may hurt, but it cannot destroy you. Because Jesus lives, so you who are united to Christ live. Though physical death is still part of our experience, Jesus has turned it into a portal to glory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. It's been swallowed up in Christ's death for you. Mild, he lays his glory by. Think about this. Born, that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Jesus came to give us life. Jesus came to die and to rise so that we might live. How are you using the life that Christ has given you? Are you, by the Spirit, walking out a life, growing in love for Him, growing in obedience to Him? For this one who has bought you at a precious price, the blood of Christ. Have you been glorifying God with your body or serving selfish desires? 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Jesus died so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so we ought to live out this life that Christ has given us to serve him, to live for his glory. What glorious blessings Christ promises to those who treasure him how worthy he is of our living for 
him. Jesus says he'll never abandon us. Jesus says he gives us life. And a third blessing that Christ promises to those who have come to love and cherish him is that Jesus brings the fellowship of the Trinity to us. Verses 21 to the end. Back in John 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus has been drawing a line between his disciples and the world. We saw that last time in verse 17, that the world does not receive the spirit of truth. While Jesus' disciples are those who do receive the spirit of truth, we also saw earlier in verse 19 that in a little while the world was no longer going to see Jesus, but the disciples would see him. They would see him as we looked at in those resurrection appearances. And then after his ascension, they would see him in the sense that they would perceive his presence at work in their lives through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thus Jesus could say to them that when he gave his great commission, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus would be with them. And Jesus would be disclosing himself to them in this way. That sets them apart from the world. They know Christ and they will continue to grow in knowing him. As they grow to know him, their affections for him will grow. Their obedience to him will grow. And they will be set apart from the world. They will reflect their Savior. As Jesus is speaking these words, it strikes a chord with Judas. This is Judas, not Iscariot. It's a second disciple, also with the name of Judas, that is among the twelve. It's referred to with the surname Thaddeus and also the name Labaius. There's only one time we see him speak in Scripture right here. And so we know very little about him we can see that his question is understandable. Judas, not Iscariot, is trying to understand how the idea of Jesus coming to establish his kingdom on the earth fits with these statements that he's hearing about Jesus going away. And 
After a little while, the world will no longer see him. Yet the disciples will see him. Didn't he come to establish his, his kingdom? Didn't he come to be seen in the world? And this is possibly a question that, that is floating around in, in all the disciples' minds. Like a lot of these questions have probably been, they're, they're all wondering these things and, and here Judas voices the question. He hears Jesus talk about disclosing himself to the disciples. The world won't see him. So he's got this pressing question, question pressing in his heart, and then he lets it out. I want to point out here that a lot of what Jesus is saying to the disciples that we've been seeing over this time we've been in the upper room, a lot of this is probably a bit over their heads, is probably stretching them. You think about what Jesus said to Peter when he was washing his feet. He said, you don't understand now, but you will understand later. And Peter would reflect back on that very situation and exactly what Jesus had said to him and, and understand what was going on there. And there's probably more things like this that they're hearing, that they're having shelving. Jesus is building shelving for them in their minds that will get filled out down the road. He's creating file folders in their thinking that will get filled with, with files later when the Spirit comes and gives them greater understanding. And so Jesus responds to Judas, not Iscariot, by continuing to stress this divide between those who love and obey Christ, those who are his disciples, and then those who do not love and obey Christ, who are of the world. Jesus is not going to establish his earthly kingdom just yet. The true believers will continue to be a remnant and a minority in the church age in the world. The disciples need to be prepared for the fact that while they are responsible to spread the gospel throughout the earth, most people are going to reject it. Small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Matthew seven fourteen. The disciples are, are going to be ministering in a world that hates Christ. They are going to face hard times. They are going to be persecuted to the extent that all but one of them is going to die as a martyr. And yet, nestled in the midst of Jesus' somber words, there is a glorious promise of another blessing that Christ has promised his disciples that will be a solace to those who cherish him as they suffer for him and for his gospel. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus had, had said back in verse 2 of chapter 14 that in his Father's house there were many rooms or many 
dwelling places. He says he's going away for the purpose that, that there's preparation for them to go there. That's why he's going away. But that place was not something that they would get to experience in the present while they're serving Christ on the earth and fulfilling the mission that Christ gives to them. When Jesus talks in verse 23 about he and his father making their abode with the one who loves Jesus and who keeps Jesus' words, Jesus uses that same word for room or dwelling place that he used back in verse 2 to talk about his father's house. Basically what Jesus is conveying here is that when the Spirit comes to indwell the disciples, Jesus and his Father will come to make their home in them as well. Those who cherish Christ get to experience a foretaste of heavenly fellowship with the triune God in the present. Here and now, they don't have to wait for heaven to taste of it at least. This foretaste. Basically, the doctrine of perichoresis and the doctrine of the union with Christ come together here so that Christ brings the fellowship of the Trinity to us. We learned about perichoresis a few Sundays ago. The, the persons of the Trinity mutually indwell each other. They are distinct persons, and yet they are inseparable from each other. And so if the Spirit is indwelling someone, Christ is also there. The Father is also there. But the Spirit only indwells the one who has been united to Christ. So Jesus brings the fellowship of the Trinity to those who are in Him, to those who are united to Him. There are a few illustrations of union with Christ in the New Testament that help us to picture what exactly is going on there. There's Christ as the bridegroom and the church as His bride and they're coming together as one. There's Christ as the head and the church as a body. There's the church as a spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone. And there's one coming up in John 15. Jesus describes Himself there as the vine and His disciples as branches of that vine and His Father as the vine dresser. And so we will have more opportunity to delve into the intricacies of our union with Christ and what that entails. Doctrines like perichoresis and union with Christ are profound. They should leave us in awe of God and the redemption that He has provided for us that is only possible because of those glorious doctrines, that they are true. Let's just think for a moment about this glorious truth that Jesus brings the fellowship of the Trinity to us now. You cannot receive a greater blessing here on earth than that. The presence of the triune God in you, fellowship with Him. 
his favor in your life? Can there be such a thing as a bad day when you have that kind of blessing in your life? Indeed, our God works all things together for good toward those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And there's the very best gift in giving himself, giving us fellowship with him, giving us a relationship with him. doesn't get better than that here on earth. And yet what we understand is that the greatest thing about the, the future that we look forward to, the, the dwelling places, being in the Father's house, is that relationship, being with God. And of course we look forward to an unhindered fellowship with Him there. But oh, what a blessing that we get to taste of that even now. We get to taste of that in our present life, in the midst of even the deepest of valleys. This is true. The triune God is with us, is in us. Now, when you practice hospitality in your home, you want to make it inviting. You want to make it a welcoming place for your guests to be. You want to accommodate your guests. How inviting are our hearts to the triune God? Are our hearts in inviting and welcoming place to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit who come to make their abode with us? Or do we accommodate things that he despises? If so, we need to confess those things to him, to seek his forgiveness, to repent, to appreciate that fellowship that he's made available to us, to appreciate his indwelling presence. And we're thankful that he is merciful. He's made provision for that. He's made provision for the forgiveness of our sins in justification and also for the repair of our communion with him when we're hindering that with our sin. There may be somebody here today who realizes that you don't have a true saving relationship with the triune God like we see described here in this passage you were to search your heart you don't really cherish him above everything else your heart has made a home for some other chief love or chief loves you don't truly delight most in Christ and in his word those are not treasures to you the word of God is clear that the wrath of God abides on all who are not reconciled to God through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's a weighty news to hear that we are under the wrath of God when we don't love God, when we're in rebellion against Him, when we're not walking in obedience to Him. He is perfectly holy. When you sin against an infinitely holy God, you deserve an ever everlasting punishment for whom you've offended. 
And yet what is also gloriously true about this God is that he abounds in grace and mercy. He's made a way for people to be reconciled to him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, truly God and truly man. He took on a human nature. That's what we celebrate in Christmas time, the incarnation of Christ. What a glorious, miraculous work of God. That's why Jesus came, to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life in the place of his people, a life they could never live, never sinning in any way, not even one wayward thought, perfect and pristine, righteous life for his people. And his obedience went all the way to the point of death on the cross to pay for the sinful life of his people. Absorbing the eternal judgment of God against their sins. And it didn't end there. He rose from the dead. Demonstrated that he had defeated sin and death for his people. And securing a life for his people. Resurrection a life for his people. This is the good news. And it's applied to you Only in one way, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. You must be born again. You must be made alive by the Spirit and trust in Christ. Trust in who He is and what He's done to deal with your sin and to give you life. Nothing that you do can commend you to God. What we do can only condemn us before God. But what Christ has done That is the only satisfactory, righteous life before God. If you believe in the righteousness of Christ for you, that righteousness is counted to you. All for the glory of God. So I urge you today, if you realize you don't have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, let today be the day. That today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Trust in Christ, the Savior. He came, he was born, that men no more may die. And that can be true of you, to live forever in fellowship with the God who made you. For those of us who cherish Christ and are so thankful for these blessings that he promises to us, the words of the hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee, I believe so aptly captures what burns in our hearts. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, thou art. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon On Calvary's tree, I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. I'll love thee in life, I will love thee in death. And praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. In mansions of glory and endless delight, 
I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow. One we don't deserve. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. What glorious blessings we've seen in this passage today that Christ secures for us whom he has saved, whom he has caused to cherish him in return for his love toward us. Jesus will never abandon us. Jesus gives us life. And Jesus brings the fellowship of the Trinity to us. So we're swallowed up in the, the, into the life of God and into the love of God in this glorious relationship with Him. These are glorious promises of, of blessing that will strengthen our hearts to face hard times when we live in this fallen world. And these blessings will keep our feelings in check when we bring them to bear on our thinking. These blessings are those that shine brightly as we walk through dark valleys. These are blessings that will uphold us as we face opposition when we proclaim the gospel to a world that rejects Christ. This is about relationship. How glorious it is that Christ has loved us and therefore he's caused us to be those who love him, who want to obey him. May these blessings that come to us, that Christ has promised to us, may they spur us on to love and to obey our Lord out of gratitude for the great love that he has shown us in what he has done to save us and then in the ways that he blesses us even now with these blessings that he's promised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for these glorious promises of, of blessing that you secure for us. We thank you, Lord, that we are never alone. She will never abandon us. You are always with us. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided for us who were dead in transgressions and sins to be alive in Christ. Help us, Lord, to live that life for Christ to live that life for the one who died for us and rose again on our behalf. And may we do so cherishing the privilege of having fellowship with you, the triune God, in the here and now. And let that even cause us to, to hunger and to look forward to, to the future of a, a full and unhindered experience of this fellowship with you undeserved by us, but glorifying to you and a blessing to us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.